Today's scripture reading comes from Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The word of the Lord. There we go. We're in a series on uh, Colossians. Okay, enough with the, the turning of the head and the wind there. We're in a series on Colossians. We're calling it First. Um, it's a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of, of new Christians. They were in a city called Colossae. And the main argument of the book of Colossians that we've been unpacking over these last, I think, about 10 weeks, 9 or 10 weeks, is this. If Jesus is truly first, if he's first, meaning preeminent, supreme in our lives, the word that Colossians uses, that Paul uses, is if he is truly Lord. If he is truly Lord, then he is sufficient. We don't need to look outside of him. We don't need to add to him for answers that we're looking for, for meaning that we long for, or for the change that we hope to see happen in our lives. So Colossians is a great letter for those who are new to Christianity. Because the people to whom Paul was writing, they were also new to Christianity, and they were wondering, what kind of difference is Jesus going to make in my life? How does it work? What will it look like? Colossians is also a great letter to study for those who have been Christians for a while and maybe feel some disillusionment, maybe a little bit of burnout, especially for those seasons in our lives where we look at ourselves we look at how we're still broken and still struggling, and we wonder, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe this isn't enough. Colossians is written to tell us with great comprehensiveness, Jesus is enough. It's been so refreshing for me. This is exactly what I've needed to hear in my life in this season. This part of the letter that we just heard read, Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17, I would argue you could look at this part, that, that part we just heard read by Elizabeth, as the ultimate high point of the entire letter of Colossians. Because in these few verses, what Paul is saying is, here it is. Here's what will happen to you. Here's the kind of change that will take place in your life as Jesus becomes first, as you see him as, as supreme, preeminent, and as you know him as sufficient. This is what will happen. 
First, a question, a couple of questions. Have you ever heard this or have you ever felt this or maybe thought this yourself? I've heard this expressed to me by a lot of different people, and it's this. My problem and my difficulty with Christianity and with Christians is that they're always being so negative. Christianity is all about do not do this. Here's what you can't do. Thou shalt not. Here's what you need to be against. So being a Christian, it just seems like it's all about what you can't do. Have you ever felt that? Has anybody ever expressed that to you? Now, there's truth to this. If you look at the section right before the passage we just read, Colossians 3, 5 through 11, the preceding passage, Paul is talking about here are some things in your life you need to put to death, you need to put to away. Here are some of the things that you need to stop. There's truth to this, but it's not an accurate portrayal of Christianity in its wholeness and in its fullness. Here in Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17, here is what we get to see, what we get to do. Here is the positive description of what it means to be a Christian. Here is what you were made for. Here is the life you were made to live. I want to share a quick picture, see if anybody knows what this is. Anybody know what that is? Go ahead, say it. Star Wars land. This is, to be completely accurate, an artist rendering, right? An artist rendering of what Star Wars land in Disneyland will look like. And many of us are waiting for this. We look at that picture and we're like, yes, I can't wait for this to happen. I didn't hear that. What? The Black Spire Outpost. This is the Black Spire Outpost artist rendition, to be perfectly accurate. We have Disneyland employees with us, so that's why they're lending their expert advice on this. Why do you have an artist rendering? The artist rendering is there because usually you start with demolition. You have dirt when you're working on a new project. You have all kinds of mess. You have all kinds of chaos going on. And the artist's rendering is there to say, here's what it's going to look like. After all the dirt, all the mess, all the construction is cleaned up, it's going to be worth it. Because look at this. This is what we're making. For everyone who comes to believe in, and follow Jesus. Colossians 3, 12 through 17, it's like the artist rendering. Look at what Jesus is making in you and in all who come to follow him. So in today's message, I've called it what we need to change. There's three parts to this that I want to look at in this passage. First, the first thing we need in order to change is we need to know who we are. We need to know who we are. Colossians very clearly teaches this, and the rest of the Bible also teaches that our actions, what we do, our behavior, is rooted in our identity. It's rooted in our sense of who we are. If you want to change what you do, you first have to address who you believe you are. 
Looking back to verses 5 through 11, we looked at this last week. But let's ask a question. What's at the root? What's underneath all these issues that Paul is saying? You need to put these things away. You need to be done with these things in your life. Lust and greed, lying and anger. All these things that Paul says must be put to death. Can they not, in large part, be traced back to our sense of identity? Our sense of who we are, who we believe we are. Let me share some examples. What are we really looking for in lust, in sexual promiscuity? Isn't it an answer to the question, am I loved? Am I wanted? Am I valuable? We want to be loved. We want to be wanted. We want to be valued, to be treated like the only other person in the world, to be chosen. Isn't that underneath our issues and struggles with lust? What about anger? When, when do we get the most angry? When do we blow up? Isn't it when we're treated as less than? Isn't it when our needs and our desires and our way is devalued, disrespected? Anger is our way of asserting, no, I am important. I am valuable. What I need and what I want is important. And why do we hide behind lies? Isn't it largely because we're afraid of not being loved, accepted, wanted for who we truly are? And so we have masks and we have false identities that we live in. What about greed? Why are we so discontent? Why do we always feel like we need more? We need the next thing. We need better things. Isn't it because we think that the next thing we get will prove I am somebody. I have made it. I am successful. I am special. So how do we change? Look at verse 12. Paul takes it back to identity. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And let's stop right there. We might just be tempted to skim over those three words. They sound holy, religious. They sound like these somewhat religious and vague terms, holy, beloved, and chosen. But we can't skim over those three words because without them, everything in verses 12 through 17 will fall apart. What Paul does here, before he tells them what to do, before he goes on in verse 12, he says, put on all these things, do these things. Before he does that, he reminds them of who they are. How do we replace the old? Lust, greed, lying, anger. How do we replace the old with the new? It starts with knowing who we are. Let's look at these three things. <clears throat> he says, as God's chosen ones. Chosen ones here is not meant to take us into speculation about who is chosen and who is not chosen and why that might be. There's mystery there. But it's, for, it's meant to force us to ask, is this how I see myself, my identity, as God's chosen one? Could I even say that? Isn't it true that some of our most insecure moments are when teams are being picked for anything. So teams are being picked for a sporting event just on the playground. Maybe teams are being picked for a project at school or a project at work. And there are the two 
team captains, and everybody else is lined up in a big group, and there you are wondering, when am I going to get chosen? Am I going to get chosen first, or am I going to get chosen as one of the leftovers that nobody wants? That's never a fun place to be, always feeling insecure in those times. You know, in, in professional sports, this kind of thing happens through a draft, right? There's a draft uh, in basketball, baseball, all these sports where players are chosen, but most are not chosen. And the storyline for many of these players that aren't chosen, maybe they sign a free agent contract or something like that, and all of them say the same thing. I am driven to prove all those teams wrong, that I should have been chosen that I was good enough to be chosen. They're driven to prove others wrong. Friends, how many of us are driven for that very same reason? What if I said the God of the universe has chosen you? He wants you. He's picked you. You have nothing to prove. Paul also says, you are holy. This is your identity, holy. What does it mean? It means to be set apart. It means that you're special and not common, that you're distinct and different, not ordinary. That's what holy means. So a quick poll here. We'll just do a quick poll. Who wants to be ordinary, average? Anybody want to be just ordinary and average? None of us want to be ordinary and average. We want to be special. We want to stand out. As, as I was studying for this sermon and studying this passage, on my Twitter feed, this advertisement came for this T-shirt. There it is. Motivated by the fear of being average. We all have a deep desire to be special, set apart, and distinct. We might not wear this T-shirt. That's just being right out there and being bold about it. But all of us, we wear this cloak, this cloak. We wear this T-shirt figuratively, metaphorically. What if I told you you could hear the God of the universe tell you you're special? You are set apart. You are distinct. You never have to fear being average. Chosen ones, holy and dearly loved. To be dearly loved means to be valued, treasured, delighted in, devoted to. Maybe what drives human behavior more than anything else is a desire, the longing to be loved. What if I told you God says to you, you're dearly loved. I delight in you. God's chosen, holy, and beloved. God's Chosen, holy, and beloved. That's me. That's you. And it's so important. We can't miss this. Because if you take this out, it all falls apart. The rest is impossible. The Bible is very specific and very selective about how it uses these three terms. Chosen, holy, and beloved. The Bible only uses these three terms in two ways. First, for the nation of Israel. If you're familiar with the Bible story, this makes sense. They are God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. They are the holy people. 
throughout many points in the story, God says, I loved you. I love you with an everlasting love, my people, Israel. But the story of the Old Testament, the story of Israel, is their inability to believe that this is true of them. And their struggle with seeking their identity in other gods and in other things. The other way the Bible uses these three words is to describe Jesus. Jesus is the chosen one. He is the Holy One of God. He is God's beloved Son in whom God the Father is well pleased. His story, Jesus' story, is what it looks like to always believe that this is true of Him. To never stray from being rooted in this identity. That's the story of Jesus. That's what it looks like, His life. And what's so important for us, what's so important for us to be able to grab this identity, to live in this identity, and to believe that is true of us, is this. This identity cannot be achieved by us. It cannot be earned by us. It is an identity that is received and given to us. It is the very identity of Jesus that he gives to us. We are not chosen holy and dearly loved because of what we do or who we are, but because of who he is and what he has done for us. Here's how this identity works. Because that's true, this, this sense of identity, it actually empties us of all pride. So in a sense, it brings us very low. It makes us very humble. We're not chosen because look how amazing and awesome I am compared to everybody else. No, in the gospel... We learn that we are just as broken and equally as sinful as everybody else, and yet chosen. We are not holy because of how good we are, how consistent we are, how moral we are, and how hard we try to be devoted. We are holy because Jesus is holy. We are not loved because of how lovable and worthy we are. We are loved because we are in Christ, and He is God's beloved. We are chosen holy in love simply and only because of our faith in Jesus. This is what Paul's been talking about throughout the letter in Colossians when he says, you are in Christ, you are in Christ. It means your identity, who you are, is found in Christ alone. It empties us of pride, but at the same time, even though it brings us low, it fills us up and lifts us up like nothing else because we can't earn it. We didn't earn it. We can't lose it. If we really believed that we are chosen, holy, and beloved by God, what kind of affirmation would we live with? The God of the universe says, I picked you, you are holy, you are special, you are loved, and that will never change. Our actions wouldn't come from a place of emptiness and insecurity. They wouldn't come from a place of fear but of deep security, of profound admiration. The most important person in the universe says these things are true of us so we can live with great freedom. It sets us free from lust and greed and lying and anger. Paul says this is who you are. That's what we need to change, for lasting change, for real change. We need to know who we are 
But secondly, as he goes on, we also need to know what to wear. We need to know what to wear. We talked about this last week. The main picture that Paul uses for change here, the main metaphor that he uses in Colossians 3, 5 through 17, is a picture, a metaphor of clothing, of clothes. The words put on and put off, verses 9, again in verse 10, and also in verse 12. These were just the normal words that were used for putting on and taking off clothing. And so you may have an NIV translation. It actually translates verse 12, clothe yourselves with these things. And in the message, the paraphrase says, dress in the wardrobe God has picked out for you. And Paul uses this metaphor, this picture, in some very important places in his other letters. In the letter to the Galatians in 3.27, Galatians 3.27, he says, those of you who were baptized into Christ, you've been clothed with Christ. You put on new clothes. Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on, same word, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Putting on or wearing Christ. We need to know what clothes to wear. Why the imagery of clothing? Why is that such a common picture and metaphor that Paul uses when he talks about this new life that Jesus is making us into? Well, we talked about this a little bit last week, but clothing. Clothing is powerful, and clothing is intimately, intimately connected to our identity, our sense of who we are, right? Think about it like this. What we wear reflects who we think we are. We express who we think we are by the clothes that we wear, right? That starts... Right around middle school, for a lot of us, no, it's no longer our parents picking our clothes out for us and dressing us, but it, we start to say, here's what I want to wear. I'm going to wear this type of shirt, these types of pants and shoes, etc. For me, when I was in middle school, it was I have to only wear skate shirts, Jimmy Z shorts, or Vision Streetwear. And I only wore Adidas shoes because nobody else was wearing Adidas in my school, and for some reason, I didn't want to wear jeans. I don't even know why I was like that. So what I wanted to say is this is my identity, everyone, world. I am a nonconformist skater. That's what I wanted to communicate. And my wardrobe changed as my sense of identity changed, and I'm not going to show pictures of me from high school or anything like that. That would be embarrassing. But what we, ref what we wear reflects who we think we are, doesn't it? But it also works like this. What we wear affects who we think we are. There's a recent area of scientific study. It's called enclothed cognition. Enclothed cognition. The concept is that wearing clothing that has specific mental and emotional associations, that actually affects our thoughts. The clothes we wear actually affects our actions, who we think we are and how we behave. So there were some studies done that just wearing a security or a police uniform, it makes you more aware and in tune to potential threats that are around you. Even if you're not a security guard or a policeman, all of a sudden, you're vigilant and you're watching out. They also, um, they did a study where they put people in, um, like, the, the clothes of a researcher, of, like, lab clothes, and then they gave them tests, and they actually performed better on their tests. They were more observant and aware just by the clothes 
that people were wearing. You know, for example, from my own life, my first time in New York City was a few years ago, and I just wore what I thought were normal clothes. I was wearing this royal blue flannel type shirt. And as I'm walking around the city and all these powerful people are walking around, I'm looking and like, they're all wearing black. They're all wearing like these suits, like these power suits. Men and women were dressed just like powerfully. And I just felt like, you know, I wanted to, I felt like I was glowing in just this regular royal blue flannel. And it made me feel like I don't belong here. I'm not successful. I'm a loser. And I'm not doing anything important. But look at all these important people that are like walking so fast all around me just because of the clothes I was wearing. What's the connection here? The connection is this. When God clothes you with a new status, when God clothes you with a new status, the status of Jesus, chosen, holy, beloved, wear it. Wear the uniform. Put it on. It'll change you. It'll change what you do. Here in Colossians 3, Paul, especially in verses 9 and 10, where he speaks about the image of God, he says, put on the image of God. He's making a connection to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, where we learn that man, humanity, is made in the image of God. We're made to reflect God. We're made to reflect the glory and the beauty of God in who we are and in what we do. He's making this connection, and in making this connection to Genesis 1, he's actually tapping in to the storyline of clothing in the Bible. There's a storyline of fashion in the Bible. Let me tell you a little bit about it. Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve stepped out of submission to God's rule and reign over their lives, when sin entered into the world, what did they do? How did it affect them? They realized they were naked and they were ashamed. And so they made the first clothes. They tried to sew themselves clothes from fig leaves. Genesis 3-7. God, in moving them outside of the garden, before he did that, Genesis 3 tells us what he did. It says, the Lord made clothing for the man and the woman. And he clothed them. God clothed them. They couldn't clothe themselves. There are many places we can turn for how this storyline is picked up, but I want to point out one more. It's in Luke chapter 15. There's a story of the prodigal son. It's a parable that Jesus tells about the heart of God, the heart of the father. The son rejects the father. He takes his inheritance early. He goes out. He squanders it all, and he wastes it all. And then he comes to his senses when he's eating with the pigs after having wasted everything, after having rejected the father. He comes back. He's ashamed. He's dirty. What's the first thing the father does after the father embraces him? And he kisses him. Luke 15, 22. The father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Clothe him. Clothe my son. Why? Why shouldn't he, shouldn't he bathe first and clean himself up? Shouldn't there be a little bit of a trial period so that he can show that this repentance is serious? No. The father says, bring out the best clothes and wrap it around my son. He wanted the son to know, you're still my son. I don't reject you. I choose you as always. You are special. You are set apart. 
you are loved. It's being clothed by the Father that completely transforms it. Here are the things about both these stories. An animal had to sacrifice its life to give its clothing, to cover the shame and the guilt of Adam and Eve. The father in the story of the prodigal son had to sacrifice his honor, his cleanliness, his dignity, in order to give his best clothes to his wayward son. So there had to be an exchange, there had to be a sacrifice in order for Adam and Eve, in order for the son to put on these clothes. And it's the same way for all of us. Jesus. If you look at this list in verse 12, compassion, kindness, gentleness, forgiveness, humility, patience, this is a character description of Jesus in his clothes. And yet Jesus, who put these clothes on perfectly, he always wore these clothes, whatever he did and wherever he went, he was stripped. He was naked on a cross with no clothes. He bore the shame, the rejection, the pain of being rejected and not chosen, of being cast off, of not being loved, but forsaken. Why? Why? It's so that he could clothe us with the very clothes that he wore. So that our shame and guilt and sin, all the fear and the insecurity that comes with sin might be covered so that we might be clothed, so we might wear these new clothes. We would have a new wardrobe. When we know we are clothed by God with his compassion, his kindness, hum humility, his gentleness, and his patience. When he bears with us, when we are unbearable, when he forgives us, when we can't even forgive ourselves at our worst moments, at our ugliest moments. When that happens, when we are clothed by God in those moments, then we are transformed. We are enabled to treat others with compassion, gentleness, kindness, humility, forbearance, and forgiveness, even at their worst and most difficult and ugly moments. That's how it works. Let's look at this list real quickly. We need to know what, what to wear. We need to know exactly what to wear. Paul gives us a list. Just a few um, weeks ago, I was invited to a fundraiser, uh, um, an update dinner for crew at Cal Poly, and Suzanne um, has been serving there. And on the little invite card, it was the day of, and I pulled it out, and it said, attire. And it listed, uh, you know, a little bullet point, and it said, cocktail attire. I was like, what? what is cocktail attire? I don't even know what that is. Why am I being asked to wear cocktail attire at a fundraiser for college students? So I was like looking it up all online, and, and there were all these different opinions, and I was kind of freaking out. Like, okay, there's a tie. Is there not a tie? Is there a coat? And all that. Um, that was stressing me out. <laughs> it turned out okay. It looked like everybody else who came didn't really care. They just showed up in nice, you know, nice business casual clothes. But Paul gives us this list because he wants us to know, having been given this new status, this new identity, here's your new wardrobe. Put this on. When you put this on, you'll find out that this is truly you. This is the you you were made to be. This is the you that Jesus is making. Let me just list a few of these things. I'm just going to read it off. Compassion. Compassion means I seek to understand other stories 
before making judgments on them. I listen carefully. I feel deeply with others. What about kindness? Kindness means I have a non-coercive, soft touch approach to people. I know communication is far more than just the words that I use. Humility. I bring an awareness of my own sinfulness and weakness into all my interactions, especially my conflicts. Gentleness. I'm an approachable person and tender in my words and actions. I'm safe for people in their fragile moments. Patience. I don't expect immediate life transformation in others. Forbearance. I don't give up on messy people or messy communities, especially the church. Forgiveness. The way I see and treat others is not based on their failures or shortcomings. Paul says this is how you've been clothed. So wear what you are. And the reflection quotes there at the beginning of the worship folder, I found this quote from Miuccia Prada. I know she makes amazing purses. That's all I know about her. But she's a fashion guru, and she said this. What you wear is how you present yourself to the world, especially today when human contacts are so quick. Fashion is instant language. That caught my attention. Fashion is instant language. These traits mentioned in Colossians 3.12, they're a description of Jesus, the image of God in the flesh, the reflection of complete and true humanity. Paul says you get to wear Jesus' clothing, you get to show him to the world when you put on these things. So practically speaking, maybe you could try this this week as you're getting dressed. Maybe you could print out these character traits, Colossians 3.12. Put them up where you get dressed or where you get ready and remind yourself, here's who I am in Christ, chosen, holy, and beloved. And here's what I get to put on to show this Jesus to others. We need to know who we are. We need to know what to wear. And lastly and finally, we need to know where to change. Colossians 3, 12 through 17, it tells us who we are. You are God's chosen, holy, and beloved. It tells us what to put on, compassion, etc. It tells us also where this change takes place, where it takes place. What do I mean? Well, let me describe a place to you. I want you to imagine this place. Maybe if it's helpful, you can close your eyes. This is a place full of people who feel with you. When you hurt, they hurt. When you rejoice, they rejoice with you. In this place, you always see a lot of crying together, but you also see a lot of laughing. You always feel valued here, important, and loved. Everyone in this place is kind, genuinely kind and gentle. Never harsh, never short. In this place, the people are always the first to admit their sin and shortcomings, their flaws, their contributions to conflict. There's not finger pointing. There's not blaming others. It doesn't happen here. In this place, they don't have all these expectations of who you should be and what you should do. They know real change takes time. It's hard. So they're patient. In this place, they don't sweep their hurt under the rug. They deal with it. They don't ignore wrongs. They call them out, but out of love to get to forgiveness and reconciliation. And when you're forgiven, there's a rule in this place that that's it. No grudges, 
No bringing it up ever again. In this place, the things you do wrong, the ways you mess up and screw up, they bear with that. You still know you're valued and you're loved. It doesn't change. This place is full of singing. People love singing in this place. There's always music. It's full of learning about the things that matter in life, about what's true and not settling for easy answers. It's a place where people never complain and gripe. It doesn't happen. They're just always talking about what they're thankful for, and they're overflowing with gratitude. Wouldn't this be the most incredible place on earth? Wouldn't you want to be in this place? For me, I don't know about for you, Here's what I think of when I think of a place like this. It's a place I'd feel safe. There's no pretending needed, no faking, just a place where I can be myself. It's a place where I'd feel safe being broken. If something was going on with me that wasn't good or right and I totally blew it, I would go to a place like that. It's a place where I'd feel safe admitting I was sinful. Not in theory, but truly and and really sinful. It's a place I would come when I felt like crying and I didn't know what what to do or where to go. It's a place I would come when I had something awesome to share. I know everybody would listen. They'd be happy with me. It's a place that I would bring any of my friends. No matter what they believed, no matter how they were behaving, I would say, you need to come. You need to come to this place. It's a place I would make sure I was at as much as possible. It's a place where I would take off all the clothes that I think I have to wear to be important, to be significant, to prove myself and just put them aside and be myself. Where is this place? I think you might know where I'm going with this. What Paul is describing here is first and foremost not an artistic rendering of an individual or a person or a self-portrait. He's describing a community. He's describing a group of people It's a portrait of the church. In verse 14, he says, love creates a perfect bond of unity, oneness and community. In verse 15, he says, you were called into one body. That's where this happens. In verse 16, he says, the word of Christ should dwell richly among you, among you all. The teaching and admonishing, it's not done by one person. It's done by one another in a community. Where do we change? Where do we put on these new clothes? We only can do it in community. We cannot do it alone. It happens in the body of Christ, the church. We become who we are in community. And it's true. There is no church that can live up perfectly to these things and do these things perfectly. Only Jesus can wear these clothes and does wear these clothes 100% of the time. But to the degree a church community can put these things on together, that place, those people can be the most powerful force for healing and restoration and transformation in the world. And Paul is saying, whatever you do with your life, there's so many good things you can invest your life in. There's so many good things you can give your time to. He says, find a community like this. Go all in. Put these things on. And Jesus will make you new, and he will use you to make others new 
more like him. May Jesus do that in my life, in your life, in our life, Trinity Church. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this beautiful picture of what you're up to, of what you're doing, of how you change and transform us. And I pray for all of us. We're all at various points. We all have various things that we want to be changed, things that we want to be different. We all have varying degrees of hope, varying degrees of discouragement, disillusionment, pain. We long to put these things on. We long to be clothed by you in all of these things. And so I pray that you would root us deeply in who we are, that we would believe it. For those here who have not yet come to know you and believe it, I pray you would draw them that they would believe in your son Jesus and receive this new identity. And I pray you would clothe us with these beautiful clothes that we might more fully reflect how we have been treated and loved by you. We pray in your name. Amen.